For this week's episode, we are again going back in time, not just to the 1990s when the crime took place, but to April of 2017, when I released episode 50 of Already Gone. Episode 50 was a look at the I-65 killer, an as-yet unidentified serial killer who murdered two women on one very dark night in 1989. He struck at not one but two days in hotel locations, attacking, robbing, assaulting, and finally murdering the overnight clerks. Peggy Gill and Jeannie Gilbert each died violently at the hands of the same killer on March 3, 1989. Eventually, using DNA technology, their killer was linked to another murder in Kentucky and the rapes of two women. This week, we are taking a look at a brutal murder that appears, on the surface at least, very similar to the work of the as-yet-unidentified serial killer. So come with me to a brisk fall night in Lebanon, Indiana, where Vicki Hirschman, a hard-working mother, is stationed at the front desk of the local Holiday Inn. It's a shift she will work by herself as night auditor. And listeners, this episode was a suggestion from a writer by the name of Damian Moore, and you may know him from his work on the American Crime Journal, which, if you enjoy reading true crime, you have to check it out. You can find American Crime Journal at www.mytruecrime.com. In the fall of 1991, Victoria Vicky Harshman is 36 years old. She's working full-time, and she's in the middle of a divorce from her husband, Steve. Vicky is also reeling from the death of her daughter, Melissa, her oldest child, in a car accident that took place in January of 1990. Melissa died just days before Vicky's 35th birthday. While doing her best to function while living with so much stress, Vicky learned that she was pregnant. The child fathered by her estranged husband, Steve. In the last 18 months, Vicky lost her child, her marriage, and she was getting comfortable with the idea of doing things alone, being by herself, but the pregnancy, that set her on a new course, and the work at the hotel, that helped keep her focused. Vicki Harshman was born Victoria Lynn Kazi, and she grew up with a brother, Wayne, and three sisters, Belinda, Paula, and Jane. Vicky's transition from child to adult happened quickly. She became pregnant while in high school, giving birth to her daughter, Melissa, when she was just 16 years old. Vicky worked hard to better herself and provide for her child. She tried her hand at different careers, including sales, and she even went to beauty school so she could work as a stylist. When her relationship with Melissa's father didn't work out, she went on to marry and have two more girls, and in 1991, her younger daughters, Andrea and Joni, were 14 and 8 years old. While Vicky was estranged from her husband, Steve Harshman, the two were still on good terms, all things considered, and they shared custody of their daughters. It was at this point that Vicky was working overnight shifts at the local Holiday Inn in Lebanon, Indiana. And if you aren't familiar with Holiday Inn products, 
The location where Vicky was employed was a holodome. Holodomes are customized Holiday Inn hotels geared toward families with children. I recall visiting the Holodome up in Grayling, Michigan a few years ago. They had an indoor pool, putt-putt golf, table tennis, picnic tables, and a play area, all inside, under the dome. Many of the hotel's rooms overlooked this recreation area, so the hotel where Vicky was employed was a holodome, and it appears to have been equipped with many of the same features, pool, putt-putt, ping-pong, that sort of thing. Today, you don't see holodomes very often, and I think that IHG, which is Holiday Inn's parent company, I think they abandoned the holodome model as the vacation tastes of families has changed and evolved in the years since Holodome was first introduced. The setting of today's story, Lebanon, Indiana, is new to me. In my research, I learned that Lebanon is the largest city and county seat of Boone County, Indiana. The population hovers between 13 and 15,000 people. Lebanon is due north of Indianapolis, and I imagine that many a racing fan came in to catch an event at the famous Indianapolis Motor Speedway and selected the Holodome as a family destination, a place where the kids could swim and play once the race was over. On Thursday, September 19, 1991, Vicki arrived for her usual overnight shift. She'd spoken with her sister, Belinda, on the phone just after midnight. Belinda was concerned about Vicki and Vicki's stress level. The divorce, the pregnancy, her finances, worrying about her girls, and still grieving the loss of her oldest child. That's a lot for anyone to deal with. So the sisters, who have always been close, decided that they would move in together to ease Vicky's financial strain. The idea made sense. Vicky was working nights, they could share childcare duties and expenses, things would work out. Belinda will later tell police that Vicky seemed relaxed and happy during the phone call, and Belinda was relieved to hear her sister once again sounding optimistic about the future. What Vicky did after the phone call with her sister was tracked by the work and tasks she accomplished as well as eyewitness observations. So she had the phone call with her sister Belinda just after midnight. Additional guests arrived at the hotel between 1.30 and 2 a.m. Vicky attended to them getting the guests checked in, answering questions, nothing unusual about it. Then she did paperwork in the office, and at approximately 2.30 a.m., Lebanon police officer Brent Wheat was patrolling, and he made a pass through the hotel parking lot. He spotted Vicky inside and waved, and Vicky waved back. According to several sources, this evening check was a normal and routine activity for Lebanon officers. Wheat did not see anything out of the ordinary, and Vicky showed no signs of distress. And you would think that a hotel lobby in the dead of night would be a tranquil and quiet place, but it wasn't. It seems like there were always people in and out of the lobby, lots of comings and goings. At 2.45 in the morning, the newspaper delivery man stopped outside to replace September 19th newspapers with the September 20th morning editions. He looked inside the lobby as he worked, seeing Vicky talking with two men. He assumed that the men were guests. Vicky and the men looked normal. There was no appearance of agitation, anger, or fear. He finished his work and moved on to the next stop on his route. 
It was less than an hour after the newspaper man saw Vicky talking to two men in the lobby that a call came in to emergency services. At 3.39 a.m., a hotel guest, a truck driver from Ohio, he thought he would get up extra early, check out of the hotel, and get on the road. He wanted to beat traffic. But he was placing a call to police. He was concerned because he couldn't find the hotel clerk. The trucker told the emergency services dispatcher that the guest counter, the same spot he had checked in hours earlier, was splattered with blood, and there were bloodstains in the hallway off the lobby. He knew something was wrong. Dispatch radioed for the car closest to the Holiday Inn to respond, and the nearest patrol vehicle was driven by Officer Wheat, the same cop who had waved to Vicky at 2.30 a.m. He would be first on scene. Years later, in 2013, Wheat, who at this point had more than two decades on the force and is now a detective with the Lebanon police, he told the press, quote, Blood was everywhere, all over three rooms, the front desk, the hallway, the utility room, like she tried hard to escape her attacker. And listeners, Vicky did try hard to escape. She put up a valiant fight, but she was no match for the assailant. And the murder weapon? There were two of them. One was a putter taken from the mini-golf area of the holodome. Vicky was beaten with the club until the head broke off. Then, the killer rummaged through her purse, probably looking for the cash in her wallet, but instead finding a pair of scissors which he used to stab her repeatedly. The killer dropped the broken putter on the ground next to her body and tossed the scissors onto her chest. Vicky lay dying, soaked in her own blood, thinking of her children, thinking of her family. And then, it was over. When Officer Wheat entered the hotel, it was clear something was wrong. He checked the area, finding the contents of her purse dumped out, the hotel's cash drawer empty. Not only did the killer or killers take Vicki Harshman's life, they made off with $100 to $150 from the cash drawer and whatever money Vicki had in her wallet that night. Because this was a murder investigation, the case is assigned to detectives Mike Beard and Albert Hendricks. One of the first things these investigators did was return to the station. You see, they had to make a death notification right away. They went to the chief's office to break the news. Lebanon Police Chief Joseph Rady was Vicki Harshman's first cousin. It would fall to him to share the news of her violent death with the rest of the family. So, who would want to murder Vicki Harshman? She was estranged from her husband, Steve, but he was ruled out as a suspect in the case because he was out of state at the time of the murder. Steve, along with the two daughters he shared with Vicki, were moving to Washington State. Police also investigated Harry Ashworth, Vicki's first husband, the father of her oldest daughter, Melissa. Harry Ashworth was also ruled out as a suspect. The murder of Vicki Harshman looked personal. The killer or killers were angry, and they used a lot of force to kill the pregnant woman in a particularly savage manner. According to White County Coroner Dr. Richie Coons, her body had, quote, multiple blunt force injuries. Vicki was struck so hard with the putter, a weapon of convenience that her killer brought over from the holodome area, that her skull was fractured from ear to ear. She received more than a dozen stab wounds, caused by scissors the killer found in Vicky's purse. 
If you were just there to steal some cash, it is not necessary to stab a pregnant woman who already endured a severe beating and is lying on the ground, bleeding from a skull fracture. But that's just what happened here. It was not enough to beat her. She was stabbed repeatedly. We know that Vicky fought back against her killer, that she fought for her life. A struggle that may have started in the utility room and progressed down the hallway to the office, where she was finally overpowered. And I have to wonder, was Vicky trying to get to a telephone to call for help? Or was she forced to the office so the killer or killers could access the cash drawer? From the reports that I've seen, it's hard to know where the attack started. Her body was found in the utility area just off the hotel lobby. I don't know if that's where the fatal assault took place or if her body was dragged there once she was dead, but it does not appear that she was sexually assaulted. According to the Indianapolis News, when police checked the logs looking for Vicky's name or other crimes linked to the hotel, they discovered that there was a series of threatening phone calls made to overnight staff at the Holiday Inn. Vicky was also a recipient of these calls, and I can't say if the calls are somehow related to her murder or if they were the work of a prankster. In the days following her death, police did a thorough search of her home and property but they uncovered nothing that would make Vicky a target of violence. On its face, what happened that night at the Holiday Inn appeared to be part of a particularly vicious robbery gone wrong. Vicky's wallet, her ID, her car keys were taken. They would not be recovered. Whoever killed Vicky took those items when they left the scene. And we can speculate as to why, but they would never be found. Vicki Harshman was buried beside her daughter, Melissa Ashworth, at the Oak Hill Cemetery in Lebanon, Indiana. It appears that her estranged husband, Stephen, procured a large and elaborate headstone, which is engraved with the names of Vicki and her daughter. And if the circumstances of the Harshman murder sound familiar, we have to go way back in the Already Gone catalog, all the way back to April of 2017 for episode 50, The I-65 Killer. You can go back and listen to that episode, but man, that's an old one, and honestly, I shudder to think what that might sound like today. And listeners, if you're thinking, Nina, if we need this information, we'll just go back and listen. Well, of course you could, but I wrote the episode on the I-65 killer more than two years ago, and if you've listened to older episodes and then compare them with newer episodes, you can see how much the podcast has changed and evolved. I have always enjoyed exploring unsolved cases, and sorry, I'm digressing a little bit here. We'll get back to the story very soon. I enjoy looking for connections and getting these lesser-known stories back in the public eye. However, some of the earlier episodes, the presentation was really different. When I did that episode, episode 50, I told you, the listener, how to reach law enforcement, but I hadn't talked to them myself. And it was at some point in either late 2017 or early 2018 that I changed my work process. When I approach an unresolved case, I make it my practice to communicate with the officer in charge before I will feature it on the podcast. So yeah, these days if I cover an open case, I reach out to law enforcement first, without exception. Not every department wants to talk, and not all of them are interested in additional coverage for an older crime, but they have the option to tell me no, 
they have the option to ask me not to cover it. And honestly, that's happened twice. Both times these were older, unresolved crimes where the family was clear with law enforcement that they don't want attention brought to this painful personal situation. So I respected the wishes of the family and I moved on to another case. In this case, I have spoken with law enforcement, both on the Vicki Harshman murder and on some of the other cases we're going to discuss momentarily. So getting back to the I-65 killer, we're now going to talk about the three other murders which are confirmed to be the work of one person because of DNA evidence linking them to the crime. We will start with the 1987 murder of 41-year-old Vicki Heath. The setting? Inside the Super 8 Motel in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. The Super 8 was located off I-65. It was adjacent to a Days Inn Motel, a fueling station, and a large lot where semis could park comfortably for the night. On the morning of Saturday, February 21st, 1987, a guest entered the motel lobby and, frankly, the place was trashed. It looked as if a drunken brawl had occurred in the space. Furniture was overturned, artwork damaged and askew, and the payphone? Do you remember how bulky and heavy payphones were? Payphone had literally been ripped from the wall. Now, Vicki Lynn Heath was a 41-year-old mother of two adult children. She was once a proud member of the United States Armed Forces serving in the U.S. Air Force. The man who attacked her was likely surprised by the amount of resistance he faced. The lobby telling the story of a fierce struggle as Vicki tried to get away from her killer. When a patrolman from Elizabethtown Police arrived on scene, he immediately called for backup because he expected to find an unhappy group of people responsible for the damage in the lobby. He had no way of knowing that Vicky and her killer were the ones responsible for the chaotic scene. While waiting for another officer to respond, he went through the motel, looking and listening, hoping to find the source of the disturbance. As the officer exited the rear of the building, he made a gruesome discovery, the body of Vicki Heath. She was lying in the mud and grass near the dumpster. At autopsy, they learned that she'd been beaten, sodomized, and shot twice in the head with a thirty-eight caliber handgun. When her body and clothing were processed, swabs were obtained and DNA was collected. If her killer or killers ended up in the system, they could be identified. As was the case in the death of Vicki Harshman, the motel was robbed and Vicki Heath's wallet was emptied. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and it is so convenient. Get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. My BetterHelp therapist was extremely helpful as I navigated the illness and death of my father earlier this year. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. No additional charge. 
Best of all, it is a truly affordable option. And for Already Gone listeners, you get 10% off your first month with discount code GONE. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash gone. That's betterhelp.com slash gone. I can tell you that law enforcement in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, they are still interested in this case. I spoke with them in 2017 after I initially covered this, and I've been in contact with them more recently. While the murder of Vicki Heath took place more than 30 years ago, she is not forgotten. The next crime thought to be the work of the I-65 killer was what you might call a twofer, two horrific murders happening in one night. And this case brings us back to Indiana, and we are still along the I-65 corridor. Thursday, March 2nd, 1989, was a murky late winter day. It was cold and drizzly. Just a sloppy winter day. But 24-year-old Peggy Gill is not troubled by the weather. The Sawyer Business College student was working nights at the hotel as she made her way through school. She spent much of Thursday night with her dad. His birthday is Friday, March 3rd, and Peggy was planning a party for him with a cake that she baked herself. She enjoyed baking and planned to make something special just for her dad. As the evening progressed, it was time to get ready for work. Peggy hugged her father farewell and wished him a happy birthday before she left. As was her usual routine, Peggy had a phone call with the hotel's manager, Betty Pierce, around 12.30 in the morning. The call was uneventful. A witness would later come forward to say that he attempted to check in to the Merrillville, Indiana, Days Inn at 2 a.m., but he found the lobby and the reception area empty and unattended. He waited for a few minutes, hoping a clerk would appear, and when no one arrived to help him, he departed, checking into a nearby hotel for the night. Around 5 a.m., Betty Pierce woke up. She was expecting the regular call from Peggy, but her phone didn't ring. And listeners, as an aside, I wonder when it is that Betty Pierce sleeps, if she's getting phone calls at 12.30 a.m. and at 5 a.m. I could not do that. But by 5.30, Betty is calling the hotel looking for Peggy. The phone went unanswered. By 5.50, Betty is up and dressed. She's headed to the hotel, but before leaving her home, she called the police asking them to check on Peggy and the status of the day's in. Police arrive to find several guests in the lobby wanting to check out, but there is no sign of Peggy, the overnight clerk. Betty arrives and tells them that Peggy's car, a green Chrysler Velare, is still in the parking lot. She then places a call to Peggy's parents, thinking perhaps there was an emergency and Peggy left the hotel. Her parents have not seen her, nor have they heard from her. At the request of law enforcement, Dad heads for the hotel, while Mom is instructed to wait by the phone should Peggy call or arrive. This hotel had approximately 130 rooms. One of the hotel's wings was not in use, which left a large, isolated area in the building. At the far end of this unused wing, police discovered the nude body of Peggy Gill. She'd been sexually assaulted and shot twice in the back of the head. Her clothing was found neatly folded next to her body. And in case you're wondering, I think it's likely that Peggy folded the clothing herself while her killer held her at gunpoint, ordering her to undress. Betty Pierce would tell the police that $179 was missing from the hotel's cash register. The register was damaged. It had been forced open, possibly with a crowbar. 
The coroner will later determine that Peggy died between 1.45 and 2.30 in the morning, approximately. The late-night guest who attempted to check in around 2 a.m. was moments away from either stopping this crime or getting caught up in it. As police are assessing the scene in Merrillville, another terrifying case is unfolding 52 miles or 83 kilometers south in Remington, Indiana a location that is about a 60-minute drive from the day's end where Peggy Gill was brutally murdered. 34-year-old Jeannie Gilbert is a divorced mother of two children, and earlier in the week, she switched shifts with someone so that she can attend an event at the local high school where her daughter was performing with the cheer squad. The bulk of Jeannie's shift was uneventful, and at 4.30 a.m., she made a wake-up call to one of the guests. After the wake-up call, but before 5.30 a.m., A man entered the lobby, and he wasn't looking for a room. Gilbert opened the register and handed over the cash inside. I'm certain she was fearful, but hopeful that if she gave him the money, he'd leave and things would be okay. However, he wanted more than the cash on hand. Gilbert is forced from the hotel, likely at gunpoint. While guests at the Merrillville, Indiana Hotel are wondering where the clerk is, the same thing is unfolding at the Remington Days Inn. Jeannie Gilbert is gone. The police are called. The day's inn appears to have been abandoned by staff. When police respond to the Remington location, they have no idea what's unfolding up in Merrillville. It won't be until later in the morning, when the Indiana State Police are notified, that anyone realizes that two women, two women who both worked at day's inn hotels, were raped and murdered by a sadistic killer. Meanwhile, miles from the hotel, around 6.30 a.m., a farmer is out in the field, and he hears the distinct sound of two gunshots, one after the other. It's March. It's not hunting season. The noise sticks out to him. He has no idea that he heard the shots that ended the life of Jeannie Gilbert. It's nearly 7 a.m. when a school bus driver, out on her morning run to pick up students, radios in that there is a naked woman laying in the ditch along the side of County Road 150. The Indiana State Police and White County Sheriff's deputies respond. The body of Jeannie Gilbert is splayed on the side of the road. She's wearing only socks and shoes. Her days in uniform will never be recovered. Now, it's important to note that up in Merrillville, where Peggy Gill is murdered, that's in Lake County with Merrillville Police and Indiana State Police responding. Remington, Indiana, the location where Gilbert was working, that's in Jasper County. The rural area where her body is dumped, that's in White County. So you can see the jurisdictional nightmare that this case became, and the chaos that likely ensued that morning with two victims, three crime scenes, over three counties, as well as multiple police agencies involved. We've got Merrillville Police, Indiana State Police, the White County Sheriff, and the Jasper County Sheriff, among others. Just like Peggy Gill, Jeannie Gilbert was shot twice, once in the head and once in the back near her shoulder. The bullet that entered near her shoulder pierced her heart, and the killer made off with $240 from the register at the Revington Days Inn. Imagine the frenzy and agitation of this killer having the energy and the drive to murder not one but two women in one night, and we know it was the same killer at both scenes. Lab analysis will eventually reveal that Gill and Gilbert were shot with the same gun, 
and the same perpetrator left biological materials at both scenes. In 2010, materials left at the 1987 murder of Vicki Heath are matched to the 1989 murders of Jeannie Gilbert and Peggy Gill. Using DNA technology, the man who murdered the 1987 and 1989 victims will be linked to additional attacks where the victims survived. This includes the robbery, rape, and attempted abduction of a Days Inn clerk working in Columbus, Indiana. This happened in January of 1990. There is also a rape survivor in Minnesota from 1991. I really wish we had a date for the Minnesota attack because the four known cases, Elizabethtown, Columbus, Merrillville, and Remington, these all happened during the winter months, February, March, and January. I wonder if the Minnesota case holds to that pattern as well. Now that we've established the patterns used by the I-65 killer, which included using a gun, sexual assault, forcing the victim away from the lobby, let's compare the murder of Vicki Harshman in 1991. The three women who were murdered by the man known as the I-65 killer were raped and shot. Their bodies were moved out of the lobby office area of the hotel with Jeannie Gilbert being driven away from the campus. Vicki Harshman was beaten and stabbed. There is no sign of sexual assault. Her body was left in the utility area just off the main lobby. Her murder happened in September, on an ordinary fall night, not in the thick cold of a Midwestern winter. While her murder was no less brutal, Vicki wasn't shot, she wasn't stripped naked and raped. Her body was not left in a secluded part of the hotel campus, nor was she forced out of the building into a waiting vehicle. It is my understanding that the murder of Vicki Harshman is not connected to the I-65 murders. And we went over these cases, all of them, so that you, the listener, you get to decide where they connect and where they diverge. Before we wrap up this episode, I want to bring up one more piece of evidence, one bit of information I have not yet shared with you. And this comes directly from the previously mentioned American Crime Journal written by Damian Moore. Going back to Vicki Harshman's murder, while Officer Wheat was at the scene, in the small hours of Friday morning, as detectives scoured the Holiday Inn lobby for clues and interviewed guests, a woman arrived at the hotel, a local woman. She drove up in her car. She lived not too far from the Holodome. And as she approached the scene in her vehicle, lowering her window to tell the officer keeping people away from the scene that she was, quote, a friend of Vicky's, he looked into her car and saw something odd. What the officer saw was a small baseball bat. And by small baseball bat, I mean those fun souvenir bats that are maybe 15 or 18 inches long. They might have a team logo emblazoned on the barrel. Now, A souvenir baseball bat by itself may not seem suspicious, but this woman pulls up and is asking about her, quote, friend, Vicky, and wants to know if everything's okay. During his interaction with her, the officer felt that something was off. He asked her to exit the car, and he asked for permission to search it, which she agreed to. The car did not reveal anything which linked back to Vicky's murder, but this woman's actions, the baseball bat, the location, and the timing, her cheerful and inquisitive appearance. None of it felt right for what was happening that morning. The woman was released and went on her way, but her arrival at the crime scene was noted not just by the officer, but by detectives on the case. 
And listeners, in my opinion, the slaying of Vicki Harshman is not the work of the I-65 killer. I believe that Vicki was murdered by someone who wanted her death to look like the work of the I-65 killer. Or someone wanted it to look like another robbery. But listeners, you and I know that the amount of violence that took place in the death of Vicki Harshman, that was personal. Somebody was angry. Her death was not a random robbery gone wrong. I believe that Vicky was targeted by someone she knew, and I would love to take a closer look at the woman who pulled into the hotel parking lot in the hours after Vicky's death. I'd like to know more about the woman with the souvenir baseball bat in her car. She could be the key to this entire case. Detective Amy Dickerson of the Lebanon, Indiana Police Department is working the Harshman murder investigation. If you have information on the murder of Vicki Harshman, please reach out to Detective Dickerson at 765-482-8836. The I-65 murders remain open and unsolved. If you would like to see photos taken at the time of the murders, as well as have a look at the wanted poster for the gray-haired, bearded man thought to be the perpetrator, please visit our friend Damien at American Crime Journal. His website is mytruecrime.com. This week's episode of Already Gone is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's holding you back from reaching your goals? Visit betterhelp.com gone for an exclusive discount. Special thanks this week to Damian Moore of the American Crime Journal for suggesting this case and providing additional research and support. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Thank you.